Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In my conversation with Raya Salter, we talk about her professional evolution from working in community-based organizations, teaching technology to youth and adults, to becoming an attorney, to now being a vocal environmental advocate, focusing on energy and climate justice issues. Raya talks about how she works with state governments, including New York and Hawaii, to create programs that help make communities climate resilient. Now, I am interested in Raya's story because while I have a basic understanding on the concepts around clean energy independence, I am curious to know how it is implemented on the ground from an energy justice perspective. We also talk about how she has tried to make space for herself as an African-American woman and lawyer in the various spaces she has worked in, while also trying to encourage adoption of clean energy practices and regulations. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Listen on. How did you get to become interested in climate change and clean energy issues? That's a great question. For me, it really was uh, looking at things from a justice perspective. I remember in law school, I was interested in international oil contracts because I I was someone who in the 80s had protested things like um, apartheid and I saw extraction as another sort of geopolitical injustice against people of color. Mm. And that sort of turned into, as I, you know, I just began to study that and I began to study international human rights and found my way into the law and clean energy. And what is it about law that drew you to it? How did you feel? And these are many questions, I guess. How did you get drawn to it? And what impact did you think you could make by pursuing that path? I think I'm someone who always saw myself as being an attorney and a justice advocate. Mm. I'm not sure as when I was younger that I knew exactly what that was going to mean, but I knew that I wanted to have a voice and that the law was one way to do it. And I think also like many African-Americans, as a young person, I was inspired by the civil rights movement, by Thurgood Marshall, by Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and others. Mm -hmm. I guess what you said kind of piqued an interest in me in terms of, could you tell us a little bit more about those experiences of that were related to the civil rights movement and how that was inspiring to you to be that change? I think it's interesting because it's one of the reasons why I I like to talk to, with law students about the energy field and energy and environmental justice. I think that it's been my experience anyway, that quite often, at least Black Americans, which is a heritage that I claim, we grow up learning the legacy um, of racism, the legacy of slavery. We have to understand our places in it. We experience the racism of our own upbringing and what we learn from our parents. And I think certainly in law school, I think a lot of us go to law school because we want to affect change, you know, based on, on not only this legacy of slavery and racism and oppression, but this great legacy of the civil rights movement, which I think has been inspirational for the entire world and certainly inspirational to black Americans. 
the next generation, the you know, younger generations and succeeding generations of Black Americans. Yeah, and it's also been inspiring for the environmental justice movement and overall the civil rights. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I think it's really important to stress the history of environmental justice as being rooted in the civil rights movement and really being the product of, in my opinion, in my work, not solely Black thought, but a really a, a product of, of Black thought, Dr. Robert Bullard and others, because I think it's important that that history and that contribution not be erased. Yeah, just referring to Dr. Robert Bullard, I was reading about the case that they were involved in, I can't remember the exact year, but the case in Houston, where they found that the African-American communities were disproportionately, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this correctly, but that they were disproportionately exposed to toxic substances or environments just based on their race. And that was one of the first cases to actually find that. And I don't know if you can Mm -hmm. explain it way better than I can. I'm, I'm sure you can. You're a lawyer. (laughs) Well, environmental justice, you know, there are a couple definitions for it. One of them is seeking a fair distribution of environmental benefits and harm. And another involves equal protection under the law for, you know, and an equal enforcement of environmental laws, regardless of race. Mm -hmm. And so the concept of environmental racism and also cumulative impacts over time, a sort of historical legacy of harms from pollution, be it environmental degradation, transportation, waste, that over time become a legacy of environmental harm on the basis of race, absent that equal protection, are, I think, some of the core principles of environmental justice. Mm -hmm. Thank you for explaining that so eloquently. (laughs) So in your professional experiences, you've had an opportunity to work with nonprofit organizations and you've established your profession over the past, is it three decades, if I'm not wrong? Hmm. Well, maybe not give me three, maybe two. I guess it's been about 25 years that I've been since I left college, so we'll say quarter oh. century, oh my goodness. Not entirely in um, in the law and the environmental movement for that whole time. But. Right, right. But you've had an opportunity to work in nonprofits and mm-hmm. on an environmental issues. And when we mm-hmm. spoke earlier, you talked about how you were often the only African-American woman in the room and then as a lawyer as well. So could you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what those experiences were like and kind of how that shaped you as a person? It's interesting because I think that for many of us, it's a shared experience. Certainly in my career as a lawyer, I was in the energy area, but I was almost always the only brown face in the room and one of very few women. And that, as you mentioned, that was true in the large law firm that I worked for when I did energy regulation and also for the major nonprofits, including the Environmental Defense Fund and the Natural Resources Defense Council. So it's interesting because I think that as women of color professionals, as a black female professional, this is, I think, very common for us. So we are seeking to navigate these, you know, majority white spaces. We're seeking to create community and, and create solidarity. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the tools or the ways in which you managed kind of like creating a space for yourself in those environments? I think that it's very important to show up in the space and remember that no matter what space you were put in and what context, 
there's always a way for you as an individual to show up. So you're bringing yourself into the space and the totality of your experiences. So you're bringing to bear your own experiences and you're also taking you know, what you need from, from that representation at the same time. So sometimes you may find yourself in a position where you're advocating for something you may not agree with. Sometimes you may feel that you are being tokenized, but you have to stand in your power and stand in the room and both bring your worth to bear at the table and take what you need from the situation as well. Mm-hmm. I think from my own personal experiences, it's been hard to recognize or or make that space for myself mm. in a sense and not knowing how to how to navigate the space or even create that space. And I think earlier on, it was also, I didn't know if I deserved that space in a sense. I think it's it's over years of work experience, I think that has kind of informed the various ways in which I could kind of like bring my own talents to the table to and really believe that I could make an impact on, on a particular issue or a particular project and kind of owning that. But it's definitely been a process and I think it still is in a sense. Well, I think you point to something that's really important because again, and I'm sure you've also had that experience. So at many professions, you know, will be the only woman of color in the room, but especially in the environmental field where I'm particularly in energy, but it's not exclusive to energy. You know, we will be the only brown face. So we don't may not have a mentor, we may not have a role model. And also the people in the spaces around us aren't used to seeing people like us in leadership taking leadership and also wanting to focus on issues often having to do with justice, racial justice, social justice, gender justice, um, that the organization may not typically focus on. It's a cocktail for feeling like perhaps you don't belong, feeling like you don't have any power and wondering if you should even be there. And so, you know, and so that's going to be a process for anybody. And it's ongoing. We all deal with those feelings. But I just, I want to encourage women and girls at all times to feel like it's important for us to unapologetically take up space because these are our issues that impact us in our communities. And it can be very hard stepping out and being the only one. But if this is your passion, I encourage us to do so. Yeah. It's definitely moments of vulnerability, but it's also embracing that vulnerability to convert that into a strength and a reminder of the bigger change that you as an individual want to make on a specific issue. So I think that's right. And we encounter misogyny and sexual harassment and microaggressions and macroaggressions. I mean, this is a reality for us in the workplace. And that is also something that needs to be navigated. Yeah. And it you know, it can really also impact one's self-confidence or feeling like, do I belong here? And I and, and in this instance, you know, look, it's hard. Like sometimes you can't challenge the system. Sometimes you have to focus on get, you know, on that next paycheck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's okay. And what we can try and do is focus on building community, building solidarity and being seen so that we don't feel like the first and only person, woman of color to go through this because we are not. Right. And just to add on to that, 
point is it's important to create sort of like a support system around yourself, whether it's within, you know, your workspace or even outside of it. And I think like for me, what I tried to do is try to Mm -hmm. see or create allies within my workspace as, as a way to kind of like create this, I guess, this ripple effect of change. I agree 100%. And I really encourage folks to be strategic. It's something that I have a friend who's an attorney who's my age, and we talked about how it's hard to cultivate real mentorship and real guidance in these fields. And sometimes we have a, a trial by fire. So it can be it can be challenging. And also, sometimes you're... What's, how's it stay and go? Sometimes your skin folk ain't your kin folk. Oh, <laughs> that's <laughs> meaning that <laughs> meaning that sometimes you have to manage expectations in terms of creating solidarity and connections and mutuality with the other people of color in your organization. Mm. And that's something I actually recommend that people do. It like you said, you know, you're, you're building allies within your organization, you're building allies and supports outside of your information because folks have their own agenda and also, you know, as the other people of color we may or may not have the political capital to expend for each other and people make their own decisions about that. So that's something you kind of have to be purposeful, strategic, and realistic, or you can end up disappointed giving your all, for example, or going out on a limb for a particular issue in, say, a diversity committee and then not feeling like you have a lot of support when the blowback comes back and wondering what happened to everybody who was standing with you when you were by the water cooler. So Sometimes, you know, you have to kind of remember not all your skin folk are your kin folk. <laughs> that rhymes very well. It's just, it's just sort of a reality. It's, mm-hmm. and so I think it's an important point. Yeah. And it's just, it's really a, a pragmatic approach to take. And I think for me, at least I can speak to myself. I kind of started off from like an idealistic perspective or platform. And you realize, yeah, just because it's my issue doesn't mean it's somebody else's issue to fight for, even if they may look like me or come from the same place. But that's sort of like the beauty of it is like we are different individuals mm-hmm. who have different agendas. No, I, I agree with that 100%. And also, you know, and this is something that I think is worth touching on. I think when you talk about corporate spaces versus nonprofit spaces, that's another thing that you know one can be intentional about in terms of what is the size of the organization, what is the management of the organization. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, say a smaller nonprofit that may have a an idealistic mission may not have a lot of the Harvard Business School management approach mm-hmm. <laughs> or to a bottom line where you can really demonstrate you know that you have hit your goals by making XYZ revenue. So there can be sort of perils and pitfalls in the way some of these organizations are managed and how you are managed within these organizations. And I think that's really important to pay attention to because you may or may not want to focus your career in a space that may be historically um, poorly managed. And I actually think that, you know, when we t- talk about big green organizations, that's also kind of important because I think it's very well documented that there's been a legacy of exclusion to people of color, particularly African-Americans, but also other people of color in terms of hiring and promotion in a lot of organizations. And many of them are working on it. However, as that process towards more inclusion walks forward, there's still a history and legacy of employment you know, in these organizations. And there's a connection that's not often drawn between 
we, you know, are dealing with these issues of diversity and inclusion on a broad scale versus what does that mean for the individuals who are showing up in these spaces? And so that's another thing to consider. Yeah. It just makes me think, you know, we try to quantify the cost of not being diverse and inclusive in a specific workplace. Was there a cost that you saw in your work in energy justice projects that you were working on? Absolutely. This is something that the environmental movement broadly is reckoning with right now. There's an idea, I think very much, very tangibly, there's an idea that if we are going to get these policies across the finish line to really address the root causes of climate crisis, we need a broader coalition. Mm -hmm. We need a broader-based coalition, and we can't have an idea that caring about climate is a Democrat versus Republican, that it's East Coast versus West Coast, that it's elites versus non-elites. I think folks understand that that's not helpful and that there needs to be a a broadening of what it means to be environmentalist. Mm -hmm. So yes, I would say 100%. That's something that's been being grappled with right now. Right. So how do you try to create an inclusive movement in the work that you are doing? And if you can give us some examples. Well, what I really like to encourage folks, again, one of the things that's been so exciting is that I feel like over the past couple of years with AOC and the Green New Deal and the Sunrise Movement, there's been a real galvanization over the past couple of years around climate and young people are, the younger generation are stepping forward and taking their place. And, and I believe this does, this whole movement belongs to the younger generation to set the tone and step forward. And I think that is excellent and exciting. And so again, I encourage everybody, you want to have a blog, you want to become a, you know, you want to be an Instagram baddie who takes pictures of yourselves with plants. I see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a mil- like 2 million followers on Twitter or on Instagram. That is fantastic. But what I really want to encourage people to do is, and this is something I wish I had done more when I transitioned from being a lawyer to being an environmental advocate, learn about the broader based movements and ground yourself in the movements. When you do that, you're getting in community and you're actually doing the justice work. And that's happening no matter where you are. You could be working at in retail at Old Navy during the day and doing your Instagram baddie blog at night. And you are doing the work when you're in community and you're grounded in movement. And what, what do I specifically mean about grounded in movement? I think it's really important because I think you've heard in other podcasts, there's an understanding that quite often, well, hey, one dynamic, the green groups now literally have just hundreds of millions of dollars in their budgets and they have the large green groups and they have opportunities to set narratives and tones and do advocacy that environmental justice groups and, and groups run by people of color do not. And there's been a historical dance there where a lot of the environmental climate justice groups sometimes feel tokenized or they feel that other groups are parachuting in and duplicating their work and not giving support to their core mission. So there really is a legacy of problematic co-option. And if you are influencing and you are not grounded in at least knowing about what the sort of the groups like the Climate Justice Alliance, or We Act for Environmental Justice, or the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance here on the East Coast. Like if you, you need to be keyed into their terminology, to their movement, to their activity. When you do that, 
You are a $1 million baddie with plants person who is doing the work. Mm -hmm. So for example, we talk about Dr. Bullard a lot. Do you know Dr. Bullard is on Twitter? He does not have a million followers on Twitter. He only he gets a couple of likes for each, each post he does. He'll post his articles. He might get a like or a couple of retweets. Go on Twitter. Follow Dr. Buller. Follow Elizabeth Yampierre. Mm. Follow Eddie Bautista. These people are, you know, are living and breathing in these movements. And, and you got to connect to those movements or you may be co-opting in the same way that other big green or predominantly white organizations do. Mm. Does that make sense? I, I said a lot. I hope it did. Should I? Yeah, I think it does. There's a power in the grassroots movement and sort of like a, I don't know if the right word is a purity to it, because it's not necessarily determined or defined by the money that they're receiving in a sense, but just truer to the principles that they were founded upon and committed to the community. I think that is what I'm getting at, Mm -hmm. is that when you, you know, and that's, that's something that's happening a lot now. You know, people hear the term Green New Deal, they get excited and we all grapple. We look to modes of justice, social justice, racial justice that we understand more popularly to sort of ground us in, in our passion for wanting to see change. So when you hear about Flint and the water crisis and you know it's racist and you know it's ridiculous and you get upset and so you, you realize, wait a minute, this is environmental justice and I want to be an advocate for this. Fantastic. It, because there's that legacy we talked before about you know erasing the history in terms of the movement being grounded in the civil rights movement, erasing the contributions of Black writers, it's important to reach back into that. It's really what, what some of these groups may call intergenerational organizing. You stand on the shoulders, you know, understanding whose shoulders that you're standing upon when you're doing this advocacy, I think, is the best way to kind of stand up and rep for the ancestors. Now that doesn't mean that you have to belong to like every single group or that you have to be, you have to take the platform of a particular organization and run with that as a rule. But yeah, I think it is important to do, to understand the contours of the movement, the contours of where some of these tensions are, where movements need support and understand some of the terminology and and where they're coming from so that you can use it in furtherance of the tradition of justice advocacy, which has been hindered by a systematic lack of resources, lack of attention, lack of being taken seriously. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. And grassroots work is tiresome. Like it, it's a lot of work, you know, and you have major challenges, not only having to like deconstruct like systems that have oppressed, but also And like you mentioned, lack of funding, but there's, you know, there's a lot of energy, passion, and it's still alive. But what do you do to kind of like keep yourself going and not get burned out? Well, okay. There's a, there's a couple of things I was going to say in response. First, for anybody listening in the context of these big problems that are huge collective action problems. Like how are we going to quote unquote, save the planet? Mm. I don't like, I never use the phrase save the planet. I think that it's, um, you know, that's exactly what billionaires like Michael Bloomberg and Jeff Bezos uh, in their egos feel that they need to do Mm. and they should be doing. Instead, decolonize your own self, sis. Decolonize (laughs) your own self. That is 
truly, that is truly the impactful work. And, and you know, that's a big phrase and I, and I, I joke a little bit, but I don't in that intentionally thinking about just like what we were talking about before, you know, I belong in these spaces. You know, the idea that me as a woman of color who is most impacted by these systems of oppression, including environmental degradation and pollution and the impacts of climate change should not be at this table. I need to deconstruct that for myself. And so that is really, really, really important. And I think the other piece that I'll say in terms of burnout, well, actually there are two things. One, to everything, there is a season. You may spend five years working in you know, a corporate environment, getting skills that seem like they have absolutely nothing to do with justice work. And then you may find yourself founding a nonprofit and having the experience of, of doing that for two years. And maybe it goes bust. <laughs> and, and then maybe you, you go on to something else, like to everything there truly is a season. And I think a big part of that is that work actually creating change and doing the work of social and racial justice is quite often hard. It's quite often under-acknowledged. It's quite often unpaid. So to everything, there is a season. And to the second part of that is that something that's really great that's been happening, I think, is that there are movements, and I think there's even a podcast called Healing Justice. There are concepts that I'm trying to actually ground myself in more and more. I don't claim to be an expert about how do we heal ourselves and do this work with joy. Mm -hmm. And I can dig up to get more, something I've been wanting to ground myself in more. It's challenging. Look, we have the realities. We're chasing checks. We're chasing bags. We've got kids. We're trying to go to school. We're trying to do so much and yet find this meaning in our life and our work. Yeah. To everything there is a season, we can do this together in a way that's healing. That makes sense. There's a season. It's To everything there is. Yeah. Because, you know, I worked in nonprofit, for-profit, and now I'm just Mm -hmm. my own kind of like business. So (laughs) that's right. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, this is my time of healing. I don't know. (laughs) And discovery. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And can we show up as strong women and authentically and what that may mean and what it means to be strong and have a, have a heart of compassion. And, you know, a, a lot of the leadership qualities that aren't necessarily valued in, you know, traditional corporate environments. I mean, we should be exploring that for ourselves, I think. Right. If it applies, some people may be like, I'm not, I don't care anything about that. Okay, fine. Don't worry about it. Don't do it. Right. Everyone's <laughs> on their own journey, right? Like exactly. no judgment, just, you know, do you. <laughs> you are not turning your back on somebody when you change modality and course because you are developing yourselves and your skills for further application. Like I I never would have known when I, before I went to law school, when I did community-based work, a lot of youth advocacy when I was in my 20s, that that was going to continue to be of so much value to me, you know, after I became an attorney and an energy regulatory attorney and an energy and utility advocate and a clean energy advocate and an energy justice advocate. But it's one of the most valuable experiences that I have. Yeah. And and you're applying that to, like you said, what you're doing right now. I think what's kind of like fascinating about what you do is that I understand sort of like this whole issue around energy independence and energy, kind of like clean energy, just the general issues. 
but I wanted to learn a little bit more from you on what are the specific projects or areas of interest you're involved in and how you're trying to empower local communities to kind of like, no pun intended, take back their power in a sense. (laughs) Well, fair enough. I think in terms of like the, the area, in terms of energy and climate that I am most compelled by right now is that we are at this point where we both need to, you know, we have a certain amount of time to act in order to prevent the worst of climate catastrophe. Science has told us this and we know that. And we also know that we're experiencing climate catastrophe. So we're in a place where I think even 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, the idea was we need to mitigate. We need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to prevent climate change. And that is what we're doing here. And we ended up getting you know, 100% renewable energy goals in states like Hawaii actually was the first to have 100% renewable energy. You know, we're going to reduce our use of fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. Now the issue is that that is no longer the world that we're living in and it is no longer enough. So a place like Hawaii cannot, and I, I say this because I lived and worked in Hawaii for three years before returning to New York last year. So that Hawaii is my, mm-hmm. one of the examples. I be it Hawaii, be it Puerto Rico, there cannot just be a focus on fossil fuel reduction, right? Especially for islands, it needs to be in the context of energy independence and resilience. Right. We have to be investing in communities and local power systems that will be resilient to the impacts of climate change as we seek to shift the playing field also economically for those same communities. So in my view, It does not make any sense to have a 100% renewable energy goal without what I would say companion justice provisions or even resilience goals. So for example, in New York, the group I work with now, New York Renews, was pivotal in passing the CLCPA last year, which is New York's climate law, 100% renewable energy, but also has substantive justice provisions. And that includes both a mandate that significant investments be made into communities to make them more resilient, other factors in terms of jobs and training to make a just transition, although we're working on on getting more of that, in addition to process elements that are designed to help make these processes of how these energy systems are developed more democratic. So there's a climate action council that is going to do a scoping plan for New York state on how it's going to reach its hundred percent goals. I'm a member of that council, but also there is a just transition working group that's made out of community groups, labor, environmental justice organizations. There's an environmental justice advisory council and other bodies that have significant contributions and some actual power and how these plans will be made. So there's a process element to energy justice in terms of more participatory systems, as well as a substantive element of we need to start diverting investments and significant resources to protecting communities from climate change and empowering communities to thrive in climate change. And it is no longer sufficient to say, we're going to have 100% renewable energy goals and we're going to focus on greenhouse gas emissions reductions and mitigation. Mm. Sort of a long, I hope, I don't know if I should restate that. You know, I feel like I kind of rambled a bit, but... (laughs) (laughs) If if you feel the need to explain again, that's fine. But it made sense to me. Okay. In the case of New York, what does Mm -hmm. a resilient community look like? And I guess in my mind, I'm thinking in particular, what about communities that are low income? 
mm-hmm. or you know marginalized how do we create resilience and achieve resilience for them there's it's a big question and, and there are of course there are a lot of factors and first you can look at the power system and there's a lot of work that groups in the uh, New York Renews coalition in particular like Uprose for example and we act for environmental justice that have both done work in the community to create community owned solar systems so you can have community based solar and also this should be done in other low hanging fruit critical infrastructure police fire hospitals schools community centers where you can have resilient power so if in the case that a storm comes the lights go out that communities will have access to power but not only they'll have access to it but they'll have ownership or co-ownership of that power so they can have influence on how the decisions that are made about those energy systems and also financial participation and getting the actual benefits from the energy, you know, the financial benefits from those energy systems. That's not all that resilience means in a particular community, but that's sort of, if you look at the energy system, decentralized power that can be community owned is a big piece of it. That's really awesome. I think if it works, I mean, if you guys do get to implement it in its purest form, that it could definitely work. Indeed. It's one, one piece of it, one piece of it, yeah. as are things like addressing urban heat islands and, and temperatures rising. Like, for example, in Hawaii, which will also happen in New York, climate change is causing elevated temperatures in places where they didn't need to, you know, historically, they didn't need air conditioning. In certain parts of the island, the schools weren't air conditioned. Now temperatures are rising and the children are literally baking in certain parts of, say, Oahu, sitting in classrooms, actually sweating because the heat has changed and the infrastructure has not kept up with it. And that is something that New York City schools are also going to have to deal with and cooling centers that are needed for seniors and what does the indoor environment look like there's a a lot of considerations both in terms of how does our infrastructure and our built environments need to perform in an era of both higher temperatures and also more severe um, weather effects and that's like that includes it withstand those you know how does it help a person in their home have resilient power or not be too hot etc but those new technologies, how will those technologies themselves perform Mm -hmm. as things, as temperatures increase or as they have to deal with more severe weather impacts? So there's, there's a lot of considerations. The good news is folks have been thinking about it. Yeah. Wow. I I had no idea that there was no AC in the schools in in Hawaii. I've never been, and I'm just thinking because it's an island, it probably gets hot and humid. So I guess there's an ocean breeze that is you know, helped the, kind of keep Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that absolutely no school had air conditioning. You know, several did, but a lot of the public school buildings did not and do not. And then when you try and meet these challenges, that's when basically we're, talk, we're just talking fundamentally for one piece of it, we're talking about the need to revisit and revamp infrastructure that we have not revamped since the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Mm-hmm. So, and this happened in both New York City with the schools and in Hawaii when they decided they wanted to put solar on every single school because that sounds like just a smart idea. What did they run into? 
guess what? They couldn't. Why? Because the structural soundness of the roofs didn't allow for that development. Not only that, a lot of the buildings weren't energy efficient. So you were putting on a solar system that's having to do extra lifting because the structure is wasting so much energy. And that put a halt to a lot of what Hawaii was trying to do. They ended up diverting a lot of the money they had meant to go towards solar on the roof, towards energy efficiency. And it also held up New York City. So it's like we get these, like, we're going to invest in these shiny new toys, and then we find ourselves dealing with basic infrastructure issues. And of course, the upkeep of that infrastructure often, you know, is also an issue of equity, equality, and and racial justice in terms of what sectors of society are historically underinvested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting. We're we're definitely going into uncharted territory. So there's going to be a lot Mm -hmm. of trial and error. So as we kind of come to close to the end of our conversation here, I wanted to ask you, what do you wish you had known before you started on this journey? And, you know, we, we talked a lot about this earlier, but is there anything specifically? You know, I think I'll kind of rephrase what we talked about a little again is A, yes, that we're constantly having that conversation that we are enough and that we belong in these spaces and we need to own that and step up and and get in community. B, learning a little about the foundations of where these movements have come from and whose shoulders that we stand upon is extremely important. And then really working to to have reasonable expectations for the organizations that we're entering into and not seeing them as, you know, ooh, this, you know, it's a dream to work for this group and they're going to transform me into this incredible advocate. I would caution and say, no, look at what you bring. What do, do you bring and how can you bring yourself into the room to have the impact that you want and do so by being in community? Mm-hmm. That's good advice. In terms of the youth who are kind of like taking a step up into becoming advocates for a more sustainable environment, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to them? This is for you. This is yours. And feel 100% entitled to grab these issues and speak your heart out on them. I will also say though, that sometimes, and I know we're talking about youth, sometimes we're talking about millennials, sometimes we're talking about Gen Z, sometimes we're actually talking about youth, right? Like Mm -hmm. who are, you know, high school age or younger. And I also want to say to the the youth though, is that this is yours, but do not feel that is 100% your responsibility because it is important for the adults in your world to step up and show up for you. And we should be doing this work to support you. The truth is, is when you step up and you work and speak and live your passion for social, racial, environmental, climate justice issues, sometimes you may be putting yourself at risk. Sometimes you may be putting your studies or other things at risk. To everything, there is a season. We have failed the young people if it is this burden and this anxiety is something that's going to take you down. Don't let it take you down. Mm -hmm. Be involved. It is yours, but focus on your own development, your skill development, because you will carry the mantle in a real way. But to everything, there is a season and being a young person, part of that is actually being a young person. Mm. 
Well, that's very inspiring, which made me think about this question of what have you found to be most fulfilling about your job or the work that you've been involved in? If you can be in a place where you are using your intention and your abilities towards a purpose, you're aligning your purpose, your personal and your spiritual purposes with your actual movement in the world, you're in alignment in that way, that's a beautiful thing. We can't all always be in alignment all the time. And really, when it comes to justice work in particular, again, it's often unacknowledged, unpaid, underpaid. So what's most important is supporting each other and getting in community. Because to be totally honest with you, I don't see how, especially people of color, women of color, we are stepping forward into this new territory and taking up this space. We have to do it hand in hand. We have to do it shoulder by shoulder to shoulder. That is is literally the work. You can't look at it like, again, like there are systems that you can step into that are going to empower you to do this work because that's not how the system is set up. And I don't care who the nonprofit is and what they say. We all also know that the that leadership in nonprofits also is overwhelmingly white and that um, people of color are also locked up out of leadership there too. We have to do this hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder. That is literally the work. Yeah, that's the work. And that alignment, passion, purpose, moving in the world with your people, with your family. Sometimes you're doing the work when you're feeding your neighbor or you and your kids are having a nourishing meal and you're doing your homework together. You're doing the work. Yeah. And so that sense of fulfillment comes from being part of a cause that you feel is bigger than yourself, but you're also kind of working together with the community to create a sense of belonging and empowerment. Yes. Oh, sis, you're so articulate. You said it exactly right. Because it's not, because it's not, because we're trying to make change. Mm-hmm. And so kudos and ticker tape parades may not be coming our way. Yeah. And, we, <laughs> and we, and we're dealing with social media and it's a lot. So yeah. it's, it's exactly what you said. Just keep marching on. <laughs> I'm full of puns today. I don't know why. <laughs> I let myself talk a lot because I felt like, but I feel like I shouldn't have because I, you've got a lot of really cool things to say. I feel, I feel like I took this more like, like I was being interviewed. So I let myself talk a lot, but. No, I think like I had in the whole premise of this podcast is really not for me. It's, I want to create a platform for other people to share their authentic selves, their their voices and whatever they feel is true to their like experiences. And it's not for me to kind of like, this is not about me at all. If it was about me, I would have created an Instagram account that was just pictures of myself in various different environments. But you know, hanging out with my dog. But. <laughs> you can get a bill. You can, like I said, be a green IG baddie. <laughs> my candy teenage father is so embarrassed by me. I know I'm very corny. <laughs> no, I think that's that gets people's attention, you know, just being, uh, you're being real. That's all that matters. And black men with gardens. <laughs> <laughs> we don't hear enough from gardeners. I'm trying to get gardeners to be guests on my on my podcast because it's kind of like taking control of your food, right? And where you mm-hmm. source food. And I think that is kind of this other movement that's kind of growing in, especially urban spaces. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, girl, that is such a, it's a big old world, but that's another place where you do the work when you do that. Mm-hmm. You do the work when you do that. Yeah. You're becoming more resilient. Even my own little self, I like when in my spare time, I like to learn about plant medicine. Mm. You know, I like to grow lemon balm and make salves. I made an elderberry syrup. You know, it's it's fun. It's a hobby, but you're also doing the work when you're learning about reconnecting with the natural world, natural healing systems, um, and also becoming more resilient in that maybe you can take care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's not my expertise, but I'm here for it. It reminds me of this book that I'm reading right now. It's called The Art of Royal Poisoning. And the author... That sounds fascinating. It is because the author has done research about how these different plants, flowers, seeds were used in the mid-century to poison royalty or monarchs, rather. I used to have this ring. I don't remember where this ring came from, but it was sort of this big ornate ring that had also like silver, looked like something from like England, from like whenever. And it had a, it lifted up Mm. because it had a little place to, you know, put a powder or a substance. And I always saw it as, you know, you see see that in the movies, you know, where they pass your hand over the cup and they put their, put down the little (laughs) thing for poison. It's like James Bond. Hilarious. I think somebody put poison on the figs in one of the, was it Augustus Caesar's trees? Anyway, I find that fascinating. Everything having to do with court drama is fascinating. (laughs) I agree. So in the last part of the interview, I go through a lightning round where I ask a series of four questions and uh, whatever comes to mind, you can answer it if you feel comfortable. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? And it doesn't have to be something lately, but just, I guess, influenced you the most, if that helps. Mm-hmm. The energy law book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just tried to, I, I saw this. I'm sorry. I, I'm probably not as good at lightning round things in terms of coming <laughs> up with what I really liked really quickly because I'm trying to remember the name of this YouTube channel. Maybe I'll just say that the thing that's really influenced me the most has been, you know, has been YouTube in terms of and other social media in terms of like moving away from mainstream entertainment Mm. and also being able to experiment, you know, as a, as a creator as well. It's amazing. You know, I've definitely done some explainer videos for, you know, renewable energy and I'm just I think be it even if I'm, you know, watching like plus size boohoo hauls, boohoo is fast fashion. We're not, you know, supporting that necessarily, but the fact that this idea that folks can be creators and can build followings um, based on their own authentic experiences, which I think like this podcast and also on YouTube is increasingly women of color. Like we are becoming creators, becoming powerhouses in these niche ways that are really reaching out to what like each other's interests are in a particular community, like as women, as black women, as whoever. Yeah. And that I think has been really cool and really inspiring. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, social media is a boon and a curse. It's kind of created this easy accessibility with limited barriers for people to share what's on their mind and creating a platform for others to kind of provide feedback and create a a community around a specific issue and Mm -hmm. a a curse because we're in it all the time and we're in some ways forgetting how to kind of interact with each other in like physical spaces in a sense 
Well, you're you're hundred percent right. I, maybe I'll shout out also some of my favorite like Tea with Queen and Jay, mm. um, Marshall's Play. Like these are the whole world of podcasting is something that I've recently become much more in tune to. That's been really awesome. And yes, though, virtual community versus real community is that's uh, a thing. Yeah, we'll include the links to the podcast that you just shouted out to. So, and we'll also shout out to them on, on Instagram. Just like. You know, like just, you know, just really amazing content yeah. that goes so far beyond the mainstream, you know, like mainstream news content in particular or fashion content, which is like has these horrible like gloss of the way a person, you know, people are supposed to look and the makeup and the hair and, and you know, a certain tone that's, you know, supposed to be generic. And, and you know, people are just going so much further into different areas of thought and representation that definitely make me feel seen and it's exciting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Amen to that. (laughs) The second question here is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I would say that I've definitely incorporated a gratitude practice and a journaling practice. I get that these are both kind of like, quote unquote, self-care, like, things, but I found them to be helpful. So I I take the time to try and pick three things that I'm grateful for and speak them, usually in the morning. And I also try and journal first thing. And so these are these are maybe personal and not professional practices, but I find that they help me deal with my work in my day. Yeah. It keeps you centered. And that's a good habit. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Yeah, I got that one. And this is as a lawyer, but I think it can apply to anybody. It is up to you to develop the skill set that you want to walk forward and use. It's up to you, sis. Yeah. You want to be a, and this was told to me as like a lawyer in a particular practice. Like if you want to do, you know, if you want to be the person who's doing that M&A deal, then sis, it's up to you to jump in there and learn the ins and outs and become that person who can then do that deal to your license and you are maintaining your license. (laughs) Always remember you are the keeper and the steward of your own license. And I think that that also, you may or may not have a license in your profession. You might, you might be a nurse, et cetera, but it's up to you to maintain and safeguard your reputation, your certifications, your qualifications, and to you to get those skills that you are going to need to do that work that you want to do. That's on you. Mm, Indeed. Indeed. And then finally here is, what is your superpower? Oh, <laughs> Black girl magic. Black girl magic. <laughs> Black girl magic. And I say that because... You know, I think that's, we talked about this a couple of times and, you know, I say black girl because that's a, you know, but I, I think that applies to really all women is that we're conditioned to feel like some of the things that make us unique and us special and us funny and beautiful are not what is demanded or needed or valued in the corporate world or the workspace. But the truth is, the truth is that it is, mm-hmm. and it is what makes you unique and special that is your superpower. Even when you feel like you're being shamed for it, even when you feel like you're not being valued for it, because that's the, that's the delusion. That's why we even got to say black girl magic, right? Because we know we're bringing it right. and we got to keep believing in it, even when it doesn't feel like it's being valued, but it is, our, it is your superpower. Yeah, I agree. 
All right. So unfortunately, our conversation has come to an end, but we'll just say it's a pause for now. Um, How can people follow you on your journey? Oh, follow me on the social media. I'm on on Twitter at Earth to Raya. I'm on Instagram as Green Girl Magic. I'm on LinkedIn. People are welcome to to connect with me there. Oh, and I also, I have a website, www.riasalter.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Is there anything else you would like to add before we end our session? Not just that I really want to thank you. I think this is what you're doing now. That's what I'm saying. You are doing the work. You're creating this community, creating a platform for people like myself. It's so valuable. And so, yeah, thank you. And yeah, I encourage anybody who wants to link with me on social media to please do. I'll do my best to get back to you. But but thank you for doing this because five years ago, this didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a movement of women of color, and particularly in green spaces that are stepping up and like, we're here, we're not going anywhere. We're loud and proud and we're taking this over. And that's exactly what we need to do. Amen again. <laughs> Well, thank you again for just willing to be a guest on this and for sharing your story because it's not, I know for some people it's not easy, and but I feel like those are stories that need to be heard and put out into the world. So thank you for doing that for the podcast, but also the people who are looking for inspiration and a support group. And I really hope that we're kind of like building that community of like inclusion for everyone in a sense. So well, I hope so too. And I find that remember that you're being inspiring and I'm sure other folks who are listening, you are also being inspiring. Mm-hmm. So remember that whether or not you get in shine or not, the shine is coming, but you're doing the work. You're being inspiring. Yeah, I promise. Indeed. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.